Double, double toil and trouble. Jeffrey Byrne and Alex Bubble. That's right. I do. I went there. That's what we're doing. Well, we're not the weird sisters, though, but um, we are the real weirdos. That's right. We've rebranded. How you guys doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I hope everyone listening is doing well. Yeah, I'm doing I'm really, really well. I'm about to talk about a movie that I love quite dearly. Yeah, Jeff, this was your pick. So uh, you want to tell us why you chose Macbeth 2015? Well, yeah. Well, my favorite movie ever, and this is to some contention, is Romeo plus Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio. I know it's not really a well-loved or well-received movie, but I just... It holds a special place in my heart, so so do a lot of Shakespeare adaptations, regardless of their quality. I really love the uh, Othello with Lawrence Fishburne, um, and this Macbeth is another instance of just like telling the Shakespeare story in a really strong, a very focused way, not trying to lose the plot or lose the the audience by delving too much into the really f- rhythmically linguistically fun scenes that Shakespeare does but instead just keep a strong narrative throughout and making it look beautiful in doing so which I think Macbeth it's like tick 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 on all those boxes yeah it really stripped out anything that had any lightness whatsoever there's definitely no uh, double double toil and trouble mm-hmm. Very serious. Very serious. Yeah, so we'd we'd seen this before, Jeff and I, but Alex, this is your first time watching it. It was, yeah. Um, it had been on my radar for a little while, so I'm actually very glad that Jeff suggested it because it, you know, kind of lit a fire under my butt and forced me to experience it. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of everything that I expected in a good way. When I first heard about the film coming out and seeing the trailers for it and the little teasers here and there, I remember telling myself, I'm going to watch this. Life happened. Years passed by. I like almost forgot about the movie until Jeff mentioned it a few weeks ago. And I came in with all those same expectations and I sat down and I watched it twice. I had to. Um, I thought it was, uh, without being too hyperbolic, I actually thought it was amazing. So we can get to that adjective later i guess so this was not this was not your midsummer it was not no unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> your, your your jesse version of midsummer yeah, yeah. exactly luckily no. good that's that's yeah, I'm great excited. i can i can safely say that this is going to be a, a movie that all three of us definitely enjoyed greatly i think you did as well jesse yeah yeah i first saw this when it came out in like a i was in berlin and it was one of the greatest film-going experiences I've ever had because German audiences were so polite. And I was used to, like, Americans on their phones, like, munching hot dogs really loudly and just, like, the <laughs> garbage you deal with in American theaters. Yeah. So I was like, oh, and it was perfect. A perfect way to see this movie, especially on a big screen, you know? Oh, man, I'm jealous. But, yeah, so I have I have a question. If you could describe this movie in one word, Jeff Casino, what would it be? <laughs> uh, oh, man, that's a fun one. Um, well, 
yeah, for me, I would probably say if it's one word, it's ambition. That would ambition. Be, that would probably be what I would go with. I like that. I do too, actually. I would say oppressive. It is an oppressive film from like moment one until the redness of the end. It's just like being subsumed in this psychotic, weird darkness. Yeah. It's funny because my word I think was going to be less of an adjective and maybe more of a verb. It's it's like twisting when I, th- when I was watching the film. Uh, the tension and everything, it's like... You know, there's the Henry James novel, The Turn of the Screw. And I've always loved that title and that phrase because it's like with each iteration of the story, your teeth get like sunk deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's like it just is unrelenting. Uh, this this, you know, there's no like reprieve ever. It's it starts and then it's just we're twisting into this kind of narrative of, of craziness. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. De- I definitely agree. This. The story, the the way that uh, Kurzel tells the story is really, well, he's the director, but there's actually many writers, screenplay writers that worked on this, which makes sense because of just the complexity of the, the narrative that it's based off of and decide, mm-hmm. deciding. Wait, 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 wait. This is based off of something? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Well, yeah. So that's, that's, yeah, that's interesting where like. What makes this a good Shakespeare adaptation or like worth its salt? Because uh, it does, like, besides cutting out all of the 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 tacky or not tacky, but um, like fun stuff, anything lighthearted, the movie does an inversion where it's like the the evil of Lady Macbeth, how she continually goads him on, is instead transferred pretty early on to Macbeth himself, who like inhabits the villainous inertia. So like. Why did they do this? And what does that do for the film? Yeah, well, so what you're touching on something is a really interesting argument in the Macbeth like sphere, especially uh, in the Shakespeare sphere, but with, specifically with Macbeth is that there are two camps. Well, there's multiple camps, but there's two main camps of people who uh, it's, they're also quite disjointed from one another. One's quite large and one's quite small, but the main camp of people who, interpret this play as they see it and they go okay well lady macbeth is the bad guy and that's a fair assessment to make she definitely does goad him on through the movie and through the play and through pretty much every adaptation but there is a small there's a small kind of camp of people which i kind of fall into which i think that lady macbeth while she does have a a part to play in it she is no more suggestible or suggestive to him than the three sisters or the four sisters in this movie or uh, any of his uh, thanes that remained loyal to him to the end. Like he definitely he takes on Fassbender takes on more of the villainous role in this but in general I actually love the way that this kind of split that between him because it kind of falls along with that camp of of people interpreting the play. It's like well she was a part of it but not the whole thing. Yeah, they they've both I mean in any adaptation they both seem like villains to me, <laughs> you know. Yeah. There's definitely something with Lady Macbeth and that feminine aura of the witches being the source of evil, you know. Um and her like I think in the play she she goes to the window and like calls upon the night to, you know, feed her the evilness and and whatnot, but it definitely is different in in this adaptation. 
Yes, she's even more villainous in the Shakespeare, the normal Shakespeare adaptations, like the 1983 BBC production of Shakespeare, which I which I really really love, which is very much a just a play. It's a stage performance that the BBC recorded and put out uh, as like one on one of their um, kind of. Well, the BBC is mostly free to everybody, but it was like kind of like their PBS type thing mm-hmm. where they like put out this free production of this play with with an incredible cast of British actors and you know it, they all have British accents there's not like Scottish accents or anything because it's more of a stage performance but it's truly a great adaptation and it, it, it takes it takes the play word for word and does it scene for scene whereas in the movie that we have just watched and we're talking about the 2015 Macbeth is not that at all it's it is all it all it is all Bill Shakespeare dialogue. Though, it is, which is a, which is an interesting choice because it's like that narrows your audience so much from the beginning. But I like personally, as someone who likes Shakespeare, you know enough. I I, I really like it. I like that it does it. It it adds a lot for me. Yes, like definitely. It just it it splits the play up into digestible easy to understand parts taking all the dialogue that needs to be there and that is the crux the thesis of what i try to get at is this movie is beautifully edited and beautifully structured that all the dialogue that they use while it's not all the dialogue in the play it's probably about 25 percent of the dialogue in the play if that it Mm. uses every line from the the play in such an economic way to where it mm-hmm. conveys the message, the the intent, the actors act it well, some of them. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's, we'll talk about who that other person is. <laughs> well, before we get too far into that, I had another note on the direction of Macbeth. Like, yeah. So the director did this inversion that we talked about with Macbeth being the one to sort of initiate evil after a very early point as an ostensible portrait of PTSD. Um, oh. Did this track with you? Because I would have had no idea that that was something the film was trying to say. I mean, I definitely never interpreted it like that. You know, I was always looking at it from a very uh like literature based background like how is this comparative to the the story that shakespeare was trying to say to king james the first when he wrote this Uh so that's more where i come from i think is but for the interpretation of the movie i definitely could see that there's i that's a really great point there's a lot of there's a lot of hints at ptsd like behavior like paranoia and uh, insomnia mm-hmm. and uh, hallucinations all of these definitely tick the boxes of someone who has like a warp time PTSD but but none of that's like set up um, through the film because we just start with the battle and then mm-hmm. which is yeah. which is really nicely shot um, when it's when it's like wide framed um, but but it's like there's it it was I I want to say it was kind of a problem for me because um, I wasn't looking at this as like a Shakespeare adaptation. I was basically looking at it as like okay, this is its own story, its own universe, and I tried to divorce it from everything else. 
And I, I, I don't know if it was like a big problem, but it felt like that Macbeth is never set up as a character beyond one or two like lines of dialogue as someone who elicits my sympathies. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if we saw him as being a good guy first, if that would enhance the narrative. And I understand I understand that it is based off of Shakespeare, so you're somewhat limited, especially if you want to be true to the dialogue and everything. But I wondered if there was... Uh, I, uh, a, I wonder if you guys agree. And B, I wonder if there was a way to make him sympathetic if you didn't find him so. You know, I feel as if maybe... I'm trying to remember my first reaction when I read the play of Duncan. Who was the king, right? He, Duncan is the king. Yes. And the Okay, so great acting choice or casting choice. Um, his name is escaping me right now, but he's a very popular British actor. Um, it was interesting because he was not sympathetic in the film, right? He was kind of like, he the way that they would shoot him and the way that he would speak to other characters, it was like this very patronizing, like oozing of like, uh, you know, old power kind of like, I'm the king and this is what I do and I eat and I drink and I send my my thanes off to go and fight for me. So I didn't like him very much at the beginning. So it was kind of like knowing that this this scheme was going to get, you know, that was being planned and he was going to be the victim of it. I didn't feel as if Macbeth was necessarily doing anything too out of order. If You're talking about sense. the play, right? No, I'm talking about the the film. Oh, Sorry, oh the 2015 okay. film. I thought that Duncan wasn't very redeeming. And I thought that the way that they showed him at the beginning, it was kind of like, it looked like Macbeth was like, not very happy to be in his service, if that makes sense. You know? Yeah. I mean, he didn't look very happy to, to be doing anything <laughs> throughout yeah, exactly. the picture. It's just a descent. So that's what I mean is that if we look at Macbeth from the beginning and look at him compared to Duncan in the film, you know, um, in the play, I think I remember feeling like, well, this is your friend. You know, you're like backstabbing your friend for power. And here I just see, oh, you, you don't ever you don't really like this guy. You kind of just, you know, follow his orders. Yeah. So I was like I was like divorcing my understanding of any other adaptation or the source material. Like, who is this character? that's on the screen what defines him what is his interiority and i was like hmm hunger for power question mark yeah ambition that's why i really latched onto that word when you asked because this movie is highlights there's many themes in macbeth but this movie's highlighting one of the more pronounced themes which is um which was kind of what shakespeare was doing as a warning to king james the first uh, was, hey, this movie is about how the dangers of ambitious men and how it can just take a little prodding in one direction or another to change the course of history. And, you know, this yeah. play is about the English basically creating bonds with particular families in Scotland, thus leading to, you know, the English having control over Scotland. Mm-hmm. And so, like, this is kind of a, a cautionary tale about that. And Macbeth, his motivations in the movie are just 
one of those many different ones where he goes, okay, we're going to take that whole long thing and we're going to boil it down to ambition. This is an ambitious man. Go. And I agree with what you're saying is that he doesn't have much setup as a character or as a villain. Really? He kind of starts on in the villainous lane or at least in like mm-hmm. the, the tired and depressed lane and then just keeps descending from there. Whereas in the play, he's supposed to start as like a really good man. And I like mm-hmm. that choice because it kind of, it's a, it's almost like this, the screenwriters went for like, okay, well we're only, we're going to use Shakespearean dialogue. So we're going to use, we're going to assume that the amount of people that are coming to this are fans of Shakespeare. So we're going to go, just in on you know who Macbeth is needs no introduction here we go like you know this character person right and I think they tried to lean on that a little too hard it was good having I mean obviously this happens in the play but I think it was really good having Banquo um the way that they had him the direction of Banquo next to Macbeth and everything when they're hearing the prophecy and then when it actually occurs you know they have that little side look at each other it's kind of like this thing where Benquo's like, yo, you're like not actually going to like go through with all of this. Right? <laughs> like he's like looking at him just like, I know we were out in this field together, but like this is kind of this is kind of crazy. Right. And Fassbender, his look, he does it so perfectly. He's just like, it's kind of like, sorry, <laughs> you know, like the first part of the prophecy has already turned true. And now I'm just going to roll with it. Yeah. The um the. The element of like sort of lacking interiority would be a bigger problem in a different movie, but like moving on a little bit to how this movie looks and feels, it's it's not that big of a problem because this movie's like a it's like a macabre tone poem more so than a narrative. Sure. Ah, you yeah. know? Yeah. It's wild. Um and and special note to whoever designed the soundtrack, which is just this misty bagpipey mm-hmm. like it's just so thoroughly scottish yeah, <laughs> and, and, and like miserable exactly you know? it doesn't so have the, that cherry scottish william wallace aspect you know yeah the movie works so well and a lot of it owes itself to the soundtrack not to mention the visuals which are probably the strongest part well yeah i i I agree. Like the the kind of the melancholy. It also emphasizes Scottish weather that goes perfectly with it. Like it, it's very much like the mist, the rain, the oppressive weather mixed with the oppressive music. Like it definitely keys in on oppressive, which is I which I really like that you chose that as your word. But I mean, I really we can just dive right in basically to scene for not scene for scene, of course. But I kind of divided this movie when I was taking notes into like twelve scenes as if it were a play like 12 scene Mm. changes and then i kind of focused in on what happened on those scenes trying to get an idea of what were the what was what were the cinematographer or both of them trying to get it across what was the director trying to get across in that scene and because that's very much how this movie to me is divided is like we can't tell the whole story of Macbeth, so we're going to give you these like perfectly constructed scenes and they're all going to link together to tell the story nicely but they are going to be independent in the way they're shot the angles and and it's like each scene is like an art piece and then we're like all right here's but 
all by the same artist. So we're just like, all right, here's the next set in that piece, at least to me. Yeah, curation is the word I think of when I think of this movie, right? The idea of like being able to appreciate the curator of a museum. You're not just appreciating the art, but you appreciate whoever was putting these pieces of art up in the hallway as you walk down the hallway in this sequential kind of, you know, journey through paintings or something like that. Um, so I think that, you know, that's a really good point that like you split the movie up into scenes, not only because it's obviously a play, it's based on a play, but you split it up into scenes and you really get to see surgically where the editing and the removal and the insertion was done by the people who curated it. Right. And that's what, like Jesse was saying, I think that's what you got to do when you look at Shakespeare adaptations. Why, why does this even exist? You know? So I definitely agree with that, Jeff. I think how does it, how does it justify itself? Yeah, exactly. and I think it, it does it 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 does it very well, and not just with Macbeth's character, you know. Yeah, it does it pretty well with all the characters. So I mean, yeah. if we if we dive right in, I I, I titled uh, scene one called the Heath, and it's ah. it's the battle scene, okay. and I kind of took uh, lines particular lines that I felt stood out for this scene. So I'll, I'll kind of throw those out if they if they make sense to what we're talking about, but. You know, you have the Give heath. us your best dramatic reading. I'll try my best. Uh, so <laughs> you have the, I want you to sound regal and British. Oh, you mean Scottish? So first of all, um, the, yes, <laughs> the Scottish <laughs> accents in this movie are, for the most part, pretty great. I think a lot of these people are Scottish actors, mm-hmm. like Fassbender. Uh, but I think that people who are even putting on the accents, except, and we'll get to that. Uh, <laughs> Lady Macbeth, Cotillard, Cotillard. I don't know how to sell Cotillard. Cotillard, French. Yeah, yeah. And she just not, kept not her Cotillard. French accent. She just kept her French accent the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, they wanted her lot, to do that. That was yes. a directorial yeah, choice. That, that was. Oh, it yeah. was. Okay. Yes, it right. was. So I was going to get to that, but it uh, it definitely set her apart as a character in a way that was very calculated and made sense. Like, Wait. Okay, so, are we still on the Heath? No, we're not. I just, I just kind of, I. The, but the Scottish um, accents were on point. But we're on the Heath. We have the first lines of the poem to the dialogue are word for word, which is really a strong way to start it off. Uh, I think that's something that if you're 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 getting people that are coming for Shakespeare, that's like just a, such a great move to start with line mm-hmm. for line. So you have the chorus that comes out of the three witches. And they, you know, where shall we meet upon the heath? And I think that's just such an interesting choice to do four witches instead of three witches, which I think they added a witch. But I I get what they were doing. They were trying to show this, like, life cycle of a woman with the witches. And so they added an extra witch. I thought that was interesting. I don't know if you guys picked up on that. I did not, but now I can, like, see it so so solidly in my head now that you said it i like that yeah i i like that i like that reading <laughs> i did a yeah. little bit of poking around as to why they did this and i think like he just really liked the the young actress so he was like screw it let's have four but i like your reading better jeff because it has a reason behind it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's also okay. like it relates to the life cycle of kings right you know and like if you if you got that out of it then you know then that adds something whether it was intended or not. I think I'll, and I, that kind of gets me to something that I feel a lot when I watch this movie is like 
this was kind of like things just falling into place really well. Mm, yeah. Like, because if you look at Justin Kurzel's, you know, filmography, he, he did the Assassin's Creed movie. He did Assassin's Creed. <laughs> he did. Uh, he's it's done so some, bad. He's done some movies that aren't so great. So it's really interesting to me that he created such an incredible movie. It's almost like how much of it was the cinematographer? How much was it with the screen uh, writers? How much was his actual directorial influence? I want to believe it's a lot. but Because yeah. you guys have not seen Assassin's Creed. I have. I don't remember it overly well, but I do remember telling a friend right after I saw it, this is exactly how not to shoot and edit an action scene. Like I, I would probably rate the movie about a 2 out of 10 overall. Um, but that especially jumped out at me. Was it visually pleasing? Mm, Not like maybe. this one. Maybe uh, it doesn't. It did. It doesn't like come from the mist of my mind as being Got particularly it. noteworthy or good looking. <clears throat> it also indulged. I think um, I can't. I can't say for sure. But one of the things I noticed because I was looking at the way that Kurzel was shooting things in this movie um something that jumped out at me was when fleance is escaping through the woods mm -hmm. the the camera is shaky cam incarnate which i i hate and i yeah. think it i think it did it a little bit in the beginning action scene there's a little bit of over editing when it's not having these like gorgeous um like wide takes which are which is where the movie works best mm -hmm. and Continuous to that, and probably the biggest detraction in this movie for me is they had like borderline shaky cam or like wandering drunk camera during dialogue scenes, Ooh. which is like, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Lock what? your camera down. Yeah. Like, we're not bored here. This isn't a Michael Bay thing. You don't have to have the camera endlessly moving. Mm-hmm. It's like, why are we having the perspective of somebody who's like falling over when we're having a close up of Marion Cotillard? Mm -hmm. Like, stop it. Got it. <laughs> Maybe that's a, just a personal thing, but it's like, it don't, yeah. <laughs> I definitely agree with that. There are some camera choices and some kind of stylistic action choices that are very representative of, of someone with Kurzel's filmography. It's. You know, like we're going, just kind of bringing us back to the scene, the scene on the heath. Um, it's very interesting. He does the slow mo well. I'm just going to put that out here right now. Okay, I generally am not a fan of slow mo. I don't really think it adds much to a movie. Beyond what about like, when Zack Snyder does it? I de definitely nothing in the DC universe. But <laughs> I just don't really, really find it adds much. But I think the slow-mo in this movie is done well. It doesn't, I still feel, feel it really adds much, but it does set some really great wide shots. Like when the two armies are first clashing and it kind of, they're running, they're running, they're running. And then it kind of cuts to the slow-mo and like the swords are like coming down really slowly. It almost looks like a, like a painting of two armies clashing. They do the slow-mo where they almost freeze things in frame instead of just like, like a like a bullet time type of slow mo. It's very much like 
okay, how about we just freeze this little scene? Mm-hmm. It feels classy. It doesn't feel like, you know, the sequel to 300 or something. It yeah. feels like it, it does feels feel good. Classy. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the scene on the heat, the, they start with the fight scene. The play starts with a fight scene off stage. Um, so you we're actually seeing that scene that you never actually see in the play. You just start with Duncan. We start with the witches. Then you start with Duncan getting the news of Macbeth's victory. A lot like a throne of blood did it where it was like all the different messengers coming in and being like, Lord, 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 uh, <laughs> except it's just one messenger. And they, they talk about that. They kind of do that in this movie, but they kind of switch up the scene. But we start with the fight scene, which I think is good to bring in people who are maybe skeptical, like friends of Shakespeare fans that were coming to the movie with them and like, oh, well, I actually like this movie. And then they're like, all right, cool. We have this really strong fight scene in the beginning. So I think that was a good choice to start well, with that. Well, yeah, but if you're not a fan of Shakespeare, you, the, the, the dialogue might lose you pretty quickly. That's mm. true. You're but like, what? Minimal. What's happening? <laughs> And uh, and we also start with you know like the the a scene that doesn't exist with you know the um, the burying of their child of the baby on the heath. Mm-hmm. So that was something that you know never actually happens in the play, but it gives context. I love that little dimension. Yeah, it gives context to the motivations of these characters. These are parents who are either barren at this point or just their children are getting the pox and not surviving. Mm. So that was a good addition. And most of the additions or taking away of a scene in this movie are done so well. They're like, yes, that's a perfect scene to leave in. That's a perfect scene to take out because it just doesn't add anything to the narrative of a movie mm-hmm. and not a stage performance. So I love that. And that we got, and then we're talking color palette. The, it's got a very cool palette on the Heath with blues, blacks, and grays. Oh my God! You feel cold and miserable just yeah. watching just, this movie. Yeah, yeah. it's just it emphasizes the dirt, the grime. I love how dirty the actors are after, like mm-hmm. just the mix of blood and dirt. I don't the know the shanty like tents, even even with their decorous like banners. I was like expecting, you know, the classic British regal halls and palaces and things like that, which you get to later. But I loved this like aspect of being out in the misty sea air in like these tents that you set up, and uh, I don't know that the the color palette that you're talking about definitely makes you feel cold and and gloomy. Yep, they definitely and like the way they just dug holes and like put blankets over themselves. It's just mm-hmm. like the very hard life of a soldier, and I really like the PTSD thing that you brought in earlier, Jesse. I really think that just adds another dimension to this this version of Macbeth. Yeah, for a rewatch, for sure. I wish they would have, I don't know, telegraphed it so I could have seen it while I was watching it, though. So I have a question about some of these additions and extractions and whatnot. Um, first off, I don't remember in the play when uh, Lady Macbeth is first, you know, um, scheming, and she's, mm-hmm. tell- she's telling Macbeth all of this stuff. They begin to have sex. And I loved that. I loved how like they, she like played it up as like, they didn't play it up as like, you know, she's a supernatural evil. It's like, this is a very, they're like having sex after he's coming back from battle. It's like a very lustful situation. He, it's almost like 
he's being swayed and he's being moved not by some supernatural force, but by a very human force, you know, which people deal with all the time. It's the ideas of lust or the things that you do for, you know, sex or love or whatever you want to say. So I loved how they switched that up. But then a question to you guys. I don't remember this in the play. After Macbeth kills Duncan and he, uh, what's his face walks in. Um, Jack Reynard. Yeah. Yeah. Jack. Um, is that our favorite play? actor, right? Exactly. He's the mascot of this podcast. I was going to say he is like, he is the guy. But when Macbeth warns him, right, and he says, "What do you, what say you? Like, are you gonna are you gonna squeal? Or are you gonna be a man about it? You know," and then he leaves and he fl- he flees to England. Right? Did that happen in the play? I don't remember no. anyone knowing, which added a such a cool dimension to it. Yes. Yeah, so no that that is a scene that was a kind of mixed like, homebrew style by the screenwriters okay. and, and the director. So originally, Macbeth kills Duncan. And then nobody knows about it, but Malcolm knows he's going to get blamed because he's the son. Yeah, and so and he that he wanted to be king right away instead of waiting for his father to die. So that's why it's such a shaky story. But Malcolm in the in the play chooses to leave. He like he knows like this has happened, and he's like, all right, I got to get out of here because yeah, I'm gonna get blamed for this. Mm-hmm. And so because it's because a play can take those kind of liberties. Yeah. Well, then it was, it was awesome to see the way that they did it, like, here, right? Like, he not only is he, like, feeling the paranoia of being the, the next in line, um, but he finds, like, he's, he knows, right? He, like, walks in and sees it happen, and he sees right through Macbeth. And Macbeth, the way that Fassbender delivers the line, it was, the lines were perfect, because he knows that he sees right through him, right? And he yeah. gives him that choice at the end. So I thought that was really interesting the way it set, set it up. Um. Definitely, definitely. I uh, and then so just to end that first scene on the heath, if because uh, they well they meet the the witches. I uh, I consider that part of this scene as well, which tells the telltale um, prophecy about how Macbeth will be king and Banquo's sons will be kings. And I want to just know your guys' take on my question to you two is. Do you think that Banquo got what he wanted because he asked? Did he want it though? I mean, or was it just like just set forth by prophecy? Well, because he asks the the witches. Oh, he asks right. Yeah, he, he asks, asks them. them to speak for him. They say what yeah. he says. What of me? And they were like, "Well, your sons will be kings." And it's like, do you think that that is a this is just a question that, that that's a really about Macbeth in general. That is always very interested. Uh, it's very interesting to me people's different takes on it. Because it it brings up the question of like, are they actually foretelling the future or are they guiding events mm-hmm. through like this manipulative nature? I think it's a little bit of both, and that's why it's so cool. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I got that from the original play too, right? I think Shakespeare was really good at like showing that like i don't know it's not just like this over encumbrance of like evil being thrust upon someone you know it's kind of just like this little you know you slowly start coaxing them into the lane of evil and then you kind of just let them do their thing Um, yeah it's just gentle nudges to an ambitious man yeah and banquo that's really interesting you know because 
going back to when I say that they both noticed or they both looked at each other, <laughs> Banquo and, and Macbeth in the film, once the prophecy starts to roll, you know, it starts going. Banquo's face is not one of like, yes, I'm ready to do this. He's like, is this actually happening? Like he can't really, you know, deal with it. And it makes it even worse when he looks at his trusted friend, war buddy, whatever. And he's like, damn, you're all in on this, aren't you? Like those witches got to you. Damn. Yeah, he's like in psychotic crazy mode the next day. I know. He's all in. Yeah. All cards on the table. Yeah. And th- and that's something that's very uh, telling of having to compress dialogue because there's quite a few long scenes that they pared down of Macbeth. You know, there's the original when he comes home to Inverness. And just one last thing of that scene, um, I'm, the, the, the quote I chose was, uh, why do you dress me in borrowed robes? Which I think really kind of surmises that whole prophecy perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, but the next scene I called Inverness, and that's when uh, you know he's already been made the Thane, and he is now going home. And this is when he meets up with Lady Macbeth. Now in the play, he sends her, and they touch on that a little bit, a letter. And in the letter, he's like gung-ho. He's like, all right, so this is like what's got to happen. I got to get rid of Duncan somehow, and I got to be king. But the the long ride back to Inverness, Inverness, he goes, oh, oh, you know, this is not really like for me. I don't think I should do this. Mm-hmm. And he goes to his wife, and she's all excited. She's all stoked on this idea of like becoming queen. And then he's like, eh, you know, I've kind of wavered and that's when they have that big speech and it's interesting that you liked that sex scene because i didn't like it i felt like there was a few like forced sexual encounters in this movie while they made sense for the movie Mm -hmm. i just i'm like yeah but that like the scene is that's not the connotation of the scene so it kind of i mean like when he shoves his hand down her pants yeah that's (laughs) it i want when he's king yeah much later and actually apparently that was uh improv oh yeah, wild, right? Mr. Fastbender. Uh, uh, I mean, <laughs> that's only Fastbender can't get a Me Too for that. I was going to say cancel Fastbender. <laughs> um, yeah, and so and then then there's a great juxtaposition between the first two scenes because when they're on the battlefield uh, in the heath, it's a lot of wide static shots. I and better make sure that's accurate, by the way. <laughs> if I'm not transposing that. Because I watched a movie where Johnny Depp did that to somebody recently, too, called The Libertine. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, boy. Um, sorry. I'll, I'll report back. Yeah, Continue, we'll please. Fact check. Anyway, I just thought it was a great juxtaposition between the wide static shots of the Heath and then everything was very tight close-ups when they were in Inverness, when they were talking. And this movie does that. It plays with depth so well in its shots where it's tight 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 up on the actors yeah when they're having their monologues or when they're really conveying the emotion to the camera which i thought was such an interesting choice uh because they wanted to make it look like a movie and not a play whereas if you shot everything pretty wide and flat it would look more like a play and i just think that that was such a great just like kind of directorial choice to be like okay we shot everything wide now let's tighten it up so tight now the claustrophobia hits it's like the only time that you were able to breathe was on the heath and then ever since you get the the prophecy everything's tight and claustrophobic just like the stress that's that's kind of tightening around Macbeth. at least that's how i interpreted it all right i am vindicated that was correct 
Got it. Okay, good. <laughs> I had to make sure. <laughs> they don't want to just like pull, like throw out that kind of slander. <laughs> oh man. Uh, and then there was a cool, a fun little choice of this uh, that it's the same dagger he gave to the young boy that he kind of like had a father figure thing for uh-huh. that died on the battlefield. That's the same dagger he stabs Duncan with. So I, I kind of liked that uh, that choice. I have a note about the Duncan stabbing sequence because he um, like. Was it comical to anybody else when we keep cutting back to Macbeth and he stabs Duncan like 47 times? Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't show the knife going in that much, but we keep cutting to him and it looks like he's like sawing a log or something. (laughs) And I laughed. (laughs) Yeah, they definitely shot that scene, I think, with budget in mind because I think it was just easier to kind of like show well, probably rating in mind i don't know that's true like, too <laughs> that's true too i mean i was just when i saw that scene i was like this is less about duncan killing somebody or sorry Macbeth killing duncan than it is more about just like this point of no return yeah and it was like supposed to be really more focused on Macbeth. like like let's turn the camera around the, the killing is insignificant he is now committed double treason because he's killed someone that he is host to and he killed his liege lord so there's like a double level of um kind of disrespect there that's not really like kind of well maybe the liege lord insulted his pancakes off screen or something (laughs) maybe he had a really good reason that we're just not privy to he's like Macbeth. Your hotcakes this morning. You got to get some new servants, my friend. Get some new cooks. It's not up to par. Macbeth's just fuming. It's like, you motherfucker. Yeah. You know, it's. The kingly cakes. I think what's cool about this movie is, you know, one of the thing, one of the scenes going to the dunking, uh, stabbing scene, um, or no, excuse me, when they find him in the morning, right? Yeah, and Macduff's like you know ring the alarm bells and everything. I love that scene. Um, That's such a good scene. Macduff is great. He's, he's my Duff favorite. Character. The best. Yeah, yeah he's, he's my yeah. favorite character. Yeah. Oh, well. That's great. I like how he's all of our favorites. Oh no way. Okay, cool. So it's not it's not Jack Reynard though. <laughs> no, it's not. And it's like Macduff is like that's kind of the thing is Macduff when people have conversations about the play, it's like the real hero of the story is Macduff. By the way, if people aren't privy to the the. Uh, the joke here, Jack Reynard was our favorite character last week in Midsummer, where we, we relentlessly made fun of him. Yeah, we're, we're and di- he plays Malcolm in this movie. We're yeah. kind of diving through the Jack Reynard cinematic universe. Which is interesting. Yeah. Luckily, he only has like two lines of dialogue. Yeah. But even in that, I joked to you guys the other day that when we talked about this very briefly that he gave the same performance as Fleance. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the, the eight year old boy yeah. who just looks confused. <laughs> yeah. He, he, I was, it was unfortunate casting him as Malcolm because he did kind of have an impact on that really great scene where uh, Macduff uh, kind of gets the news of his family. To oh. me, like it kind of it lessened that scene a little bit because just he delivered. He's the only other person that doesn't have a Scottish accent that wasn't on purpose. Mm-hmm. But do you think you noticed it because we just watched Midsummer? Like, Absolutely. do you think you would oh, have yeah. noticed it? I wouldn't. I like. I don't think. Like, it definitely wasn't terrible. I, I think it was just like my idea of him being transposed 
from my recent midsummer. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, it's that guy. And so I just saw the Christian character and I was like, oh, yeah, definitely. God. There was like, there would be no way that I could go into this film after seeing Midsommar without bringing some, some of that over. If I had just seen the film without knowing who he was, he would have just passed through my mind as some just generic, you know, actor that they had chosen. Yeah, which he did the first time. <laughs> Same. Yeah, I've seen this no movie memory. many times yeah. before this and it was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, that's just like a character, a person they cast. And then after seeing Midsummer, I was like, I don't know. I just, I had a kind of sour taste in my mouth for his performance. You know, I, I will say this is the, this film actually is um, going back to what you said, Jeff, about Macduff being the hero. I never got that when I was reading the plays, uh, either when I was doing it for myself or, you know, if I was being taught in like a class or having a discussion. But this movie, this film and that scene where he's waiting and hears about what happens to his family, that scene for some reason really like set in stone. Okay. Yeah. He's, he is the hero of this movie. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, it's definitely true. And he definitely acted that scene, probably the strongest of any other character's performance in the movie. I I thought that was the strongest performance was his reaction to his children. Dying. I will say Michael Fassbender is a great actor. He's stellar. All of the stuff that he does, I think, is really great. But in this movie... Especially Assassin's Creed. <laughs> <laughs> in this movie, though, it's like he didn't even really... He was good the whole time. I want to put that out there. But like you said, you know... Um, yeah, something about that performance from Macduff was just like... I don't know. Fassbender... Because it, because it had a core of humanity to it that you felt... Macbeth is distant from you, even if he's like like he, like the best acting in the world. Yeah, he's still distant from you because you're just like uh, his motivation is power. He's just like power crazed. There's no like core there that's relatable. Yeah, except like thematically. But Macduff, it's like he murdered my fucking children and my yeah. wife and everybody. Yeah. like like that is <laughs> powerful. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, Mac Mac. Uh... Fassbender and, and Macbeth, it was kind of like you said, like this, especially when he puts on the robes of the, the you know, the kingly robes, the kind of mm-hmm. like white, like goldish things. I was like, you just do not feel like I can't identify with you at all. But we know when he's in his little black smock after fighting and he's all dirty and everything, that's a little more relatable. But then once he puts on the the outfit, um, it's uh, it's just all. Yeah, there are a few a few glimmers of him not being a complete asshole uh, in the first like 10 minutes. But then after that, it's yeah. like we're in full darkness yeah. mode here. It's so funny. Like we're, I, I, I'm loving this because I'm loving your guys' interpretation so much. Uh, we're skipping ahead, so I have to jump around to that. But are you I, are you talking about like the hotcakes thing? No, I'm not talking about the hotcakes thing. No, I'll, I'll never be talking about the hotcakes thing. If we're talking about Shakespeare, I'm going to be talking about Shakespeare. Um, the because <laughs> I'm I'm so excited to talk about it with other people. The um, I want to point out that once he's made king, there's an actual visual representation of like heavy is the head that holds the crown. He's always filmed low on the floor, like as if the weight of his very like robes and crown oh, yeah. lay upon him uncomfortably and heavy. He like he can't stand with them unless he's like forced to. He's either sitting on the throne or kind of crumpled up on the ground, yeah. or tracing things with his dagger. He's or when he's uh, 
getting ready for battle and they're all like just huddled in the main room of the castle and just like kind of praying and he's like squatting and the robes are upon him heavy it just it just sits on him this weight of what he's done to get to this position and i really i really really liked the way they did that he's just always low everyone's always standing above him showing that like he is really like the lowest man on this totem pole i didn't even realize that but yeah that's a really good point there's a scene where he's like on the stone floor in the hall i think and the robes are over him and he like is like doing something on the ground i think like he looks like almost like a child you know in these weird like postures of repose you know it's like not kingly um yep if i i agree fully if i can go to maybe another movie real quick i think of commodus from gladiator you know this like weird like almost like cat-like aspect of like just draping like draping themselves over stuff um it adds like so much to his character i do want to talk about the eyeliner the makeup aspect of the movie only because i actually thought it was done extremely well i don't know if it was a scottish tradition you know i know the face paint and the things like that but you know i thought we were gonna have these scenes with like his eyeliner running down his face you know and it being like the terror. he's like writing god yeah, poetry exactly, in, you his, know? in his room but they didn't do any of that and i loved it it like gave his eyes this really dark set like he looked tired. He looked exhausted throughout the movie. And once he becomes king, his health, like his, uh, he has like a pallid, almost like color to him. Uh, yep, definitely. He doesn't look good. When, yeah, she mentions that, that like, and I wrote like, the better the clothes, the worse the appearance. Ah, that's, that's awesome. Like, yeah. he, because he just like, he just, he just falls to pieces. He can't sleep, can't eat. Uh, it's, his mind is fully, I love when he says that when he walks up and he just points to his head with a dagger and he says my mind is filled with scorpions oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's like it's like it's just it's such a perfect way to like describe the way he's acting mm-hmm. it's very yeah, ma- it's very a, manic that was a strong moment right there strong actorly moment and writerly moment as well was that a was that a Shakespeare line or did they did they did they write that one in uh, no, that's a Shakespeare line. Yeah, my mind right. was it, it was so good, it had to have been, yeah. right? And there's like other, a couple other really great lines, like when Malcolm uh, is discovered, um, not sorry, not Malcolm, when um, Duncan is discovered dead, um, I like that they cut, the, there's like a scene where it's like this, they do this wide following shot, and they, it's like the town, the town, they pass over a building, and then it's Duncan's tent, and they cut the sound. They just, they totally cut all the effects. There's like sounds of kids playing and laughing and kind of a town. And then it hits Duncan's tent and it's like no sound, just mist. And it's like such a great moment of like visual foreshadowing. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point too. Yeah, and they had a, but they had a great uh, line uh, that, that McDuff says, shake off downy sleep man, death counter, death's counterfeit. You come look at death yourself. Mm-hmm. I love that. Like, that's just so Shakespearean to like at, to be able to give that much information in like four lines. Seriously, sleep the counterfeit yeah. of death. Yeah. What do you guys think was the best scene in the movie? I have it in my notes right here. Cool. Uh, yeah, my favorite. <laughs> He's <scene>. ready, folks. <laughs> my, my favorite scene in it's the like movie. It's like a kid in a candy store. <laughs> it Ask is. me more Shakespeare questions. <laughs> Ask me more things about this movie. Um, it's I call it scene ten, 
where um and it's the i kind of lumped it together it's the scene where McGuff, uh, mcduff gets the news but McGuff. <laughs> McGuff, mcguffin gets the news um uh but no my favorite scene in the movie is when lady Macbeth heads back to inverness to the church and she has her moment of kind of realization of what she's done because mm-hmm. she's been kind of holding it together the whole movie. damage control and, yeah and 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 it's finally got to her because she's like my husband is insane yeah he like he burned a woman and her children in front of me like my i've lost him he's gone and like you can tell when he sees the weird sisters again he comes back and he's like no more shall, shall like the course of my mind affect the course of my hand and it was just basically like, no, I'm not going to sit on anything. And Mike, Michael Fassbender just read those lines beautifully where he's like, he walks over to the um, uh, armoire and grabs something and he's like, kill his wife, his babes, and everything like that. Just like, so matter of fact. But burn favorite, his hotcakes. Yeah, burn his hotcakes. <laughs> he'll never Mine have... are the best in the land. He'll never have good hotcakes. Man, I love that no, my fa- Sorry. Oh, go ahead. My go. favorite... Yeah, sorry. But my actual favorite scene is when she's in the church and she's just apologizing, basically saying like out damn spot Mm. um like you know all the perfumes of arabia will not get this smell out she's seeing like the blood on her hands is stained there forever hell is murky will these hands ne'er be clean like it's just it's she's just realizing at this moment like we are we're lost this is it yeah in the play it's like when she's doing that it, it when i think of it it's like you're still a guilty person just trying to do anything to cover what you've done but in this movie you're accepting that you are basically truly fucked <laughs> like yeah well in the movie it's in the play it's done she's done the sleepwalking and got it two of Macbeth's um thanes that are like i think it's lennox and i can't remember the other one's name but um the priest and one of the thanes are kind of talking out in the hallway and she stumbles out and she's sleepwalking walking and she's like mimicking trying to wash her hands over and over again and she says you know out damn spot and like they hear that and they're like oh Macbeth killed the king that's obvious now and then that's when he really gets like damned as a tyrant yep but um yeah so it's uh, my, that's, that's my favorite that's scene a, she's just that's a good explanation of your favorite scene yeah yeah she's yeah she's just sitting there talking to the pox ridden child and like that was a great little like hallucination, and that was it. Yeah, that was that's definitely my favorite scene. What about you guys, Alex? You got one? Yeah, I do actually. Um, I didn't need to write this one down because both times watching through, it just stuck with me, and it actually goes to one of the scenes that Jeff was just speaking of—the burning of Macduff's family. Um, yes. I loved how they, you know, they didn't show like the. Uh, I love the implication, right? I love the implication and the implied aspect of this movie in so many ways, but especially in this scene, you had this tension of like, oh my God, is he actually going to do this? Even knowing that he's going to do it, right? You see Lady Macbeth's face and she's like, whoa, everyone's face. The whole town is there watching, you know? And they're like, oh my God, I can't believe this is like, we are doing this right now. Um, Then it cuts and it pans out to the ocean, I believe, the cliff sides, and slowly goes back in, and you just barely start to see little flecks of embers and things like that. And you're like, okay, you, you lit it, you know? And I, I just, I don't know why I loved, I loved that aspect. I will say there's a lot about nature in this, 
in this movie, like a wind and sea and mist and fog and things like that, that they're doing yeah, something. He, he took his, he took his Kurosawa lessons. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely uh, really implies like the kind of stark, depressing, melancholy beauty that is the Scottish Highlands. And then when, of course, I would say it's really hard, but when Macduff, when Macduff says, you know, my tongue is in my sword, that, that scene at the end when they duke it out, ugh, I think he says something about my tongue is in my sword. Like, I don't need to say anything to you. My, yeah, my words are in my sword. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I love that scene. And the speaking of the burning scene, just on that, that is the first time that the word tyrant is spoken in the movie, which I thought was a really interesting choice because this movie, the theme is about basically beware ambitious men, beware tyrants. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is the first use of the word tyrant. And it was just being spoken by Lady Macduff was a just, I think a really great stylistic choice. You know, it's funny. Yeah. So my, sorry, oh, go, go ahead. ahead, Alex. I was just going to say, when you say beware of ambition, beware of ambitious men or beware of tyrants it's almost funny because it's like is the message to people to be afraid of ambitious men or is the message to ambitious men like hey be it be be wary of yourself because you are go, you're on the cusp of tyranny you know i don't know if they need to be mutually exclusive yeah it's a message to good men got it that's great to like banquo right or to make yes yeah yeah it's, it's a message to good men of Beware ambitious men. It's also a message to good kings, good leaders. Like, you're a good king. Like, Duncan is revered. They say mm-hmm. that. They say that, like, if I kill him, you know, like, angels will cry. Like, this is like, this would be a horrible decision, not because he's my king, but also he's just a good man. Yeah. And so that's kind of the theme is like, beware, good men need to beware ambitious men. So speaking speaking of Banquo, I I mean I I agree with anything like where McDuff has these amazing lines. Uh, it's probably my favorite moments. But a scene that I thought was the most disappointing scene because it's usually my favorite in any Macbeth is um when Banquo shows up. Uh, Sorry, I'm looking through my notes here. The feast. Um, yeah, it's the feast sequence. Yeah, the ghost because, of Banquo. Because, um, yeah, I love it. I love it when the ghost of Banquo comes in and yeah. the madness that that <laughs> engenders. It's probably but, the most famous scene in this in this play. But but in this one, if you're just looking at it within the logic of the movie, the assassins come in, and Macbeth chides the assassin for not killing Fleance as everyone else is silent and literally right behind him. Right? It's like there's no way that people didn't hear him say all of this. And I was just like thrown out of the scene. Even the Mac- even Lady Macbeth speaking to him in that scene when she was doing the PR damage control, I was like, what is happening? I was like, how are people not hearing this? It doesn't make any sense. That's like you're you're just admitting your crimes to everybody because <laughs> yeah. they can hear you clearly by yeah. the framing. I think that what we're seeing here is one of the biggest disconnects between the play and the movie, which is interesting to have it be done on such an important scene as this one. But they really wanted 
it's almost like I felt like they were really excited to do this scene. And so because of that, they kind of rushed it a little bit. And all you had to do was move him 20 feet away and it'd be fine. But there's a little bit of like that kind of implied, like, you know, in a play where it says like aside in parentheses, I think that's kind of what they're trying to do is like, nobody can hear them because it's like an aside, but in movie form, it does very much kind of, it, it kind of just puts all their dirty laundry out immediately. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying in the context that's what I'm saying in the context of the movie. Like, it, it, cause it's like, it's something I can forgive because it's like, yeah, I get it. I get what you're saying, Jeff, you know? But within the movie, I was like, this is dumb. <laughs> Everyone can hear you. <laughs> it's true. It was an interesting choice to make by not just like pulling him to the middle of the room and having like an actual like pull out conversation with him. But it's just kind of what they went with because he's like a loony and like, they're like, Oh, well at this point, I think maybe what they were trying to do with that scene instead was convey that like, this is how scared people are of him where they can let, let like stand there while he kind of basically confesses his crimes Mm -hmm. and not make a movement except McDuff. Who's like, just like, I'm done. Like I'm I'm done. (laughs) listening to this fucking fool yeah and he just like walk and it's like even though that was a great scene and fassbender acted it beautifully the actor uh, his name sean harris who played mcduff he just the way he leaves is so powerful like the way he just walks out and like just with just his chest held high his head like his chin down just like like woman in tow yeah, it was just like, I get it. He's done. We won't see him again. And he and didn't even was, need to speak. Yeah, and it was just uh, it was just so great. Such great physical acting. But that's a so that's your favorite scene because they did didn't do it right? No, that's uh, that's my the scene I wanted to highlight because it's usually my favorite in any adaptation. It's my favorite in the Kurosawa one, Throne of Blood. It's my favorite in the play. Um, yeah, it's like the most intense. It's supposed to be like and, the, and one of the it was weird scenes. how they bungled it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Some of the scenes did seem muted, right? Scenes that I was prepped for that I would like be licking my lips, you know, yep. being like, "Ooh, this is the shake. This is this is the part that I've been waiting to see how they do it." But I actually do half of me does appreciate that because it pulled up other moments and it like emphasized other moments for me that I never really touched on before that made it a a cool and a very interesting story. And again, I just go back to this idea, but the relationship between Banquo and Macbeth, especially when they're listening to the prophecy, just the, the, the difference in their visage and their face, you know, and the way that they react. I just, I loved how they emphasize some of those scenes, but one of the scenes I thought was kind of muted was, you know, my Lord, the queen is dead. That, that like pretty famous scene. I was like, Hmm. Well, they wrapped it up. They make, they meshed two scenes there. Oh, the they death did? Of Lady, okay. Yeah, the death of Lady Macbeth is uh, was an interesting choice because I see what they wanted to do. So when he killed Duncan, he was wearing black robes. He was wearing black tunic, and Duncan was in white. When he picks up his wife, she's in a white gown, and he's in black tunic. So it's like this idea that like he is the per- uh, perpetrator of not only Duncan's death, but his wife's death. Like, these deaths are his fault. He murdered her the same as he murdered Duncan. And I really like the way they kind of brought a little bit of that back to that scene. 
but in the play he's kind of commiserating with his like leftover things and he's plotting the downfall of Macduff Mm -hmm. and they're like the doctor just comes up and he's like my lord your wife is dead and he's like oh and there's like he has like a real like five line aside about like oh well you know that makes sense. She shouldn't, you know, she, she should have died earlier. I'm surprised she Bitch couldn't this make hotcakes good. <laughs> so they, but they, what they did in the movie was to emphasize his madness. They had him like pick up her body and like kind of do this like mock dance with it as like yeah. he like drags her to the ground. I see what they did. I appreciate like the, dr- the drama that it added to the movie, but it was, it was their own kind of homunculus of scenes. Yeah. Okay. Very understated. Sense. Yeah, so they definitely uh, did that. Interestingly, when he sees the the weird sisters again, um, you know, and then we get the famous, you know, no man of woman born or none of woman born, depending uh-huh. on how you interpret the line. Uh, that's one of the more famous lines. Uh, you know, the um, the the forest of Dunsinade. <laughs> that was an interesting choice. As we kind of near the scene, I liked that. I liked that a lot. Yeah, I like it a lot dope. for a movie because in the in the story they just pluck um, branches from the trees and they kind of just kind of mosey, and it looks like with all these soldiers that the forest is moving. Very nice, like in a play, but in a movie that would look very silly and campy. <laughs> that would be like some Monty Python shit. A bunch of like English soldiers, no mist, just walking with springs. Just keep running. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been such a silly choice. So I really like how like they interpret it as they're going to burn the forest down and the, the cinders are going to bring it yeah. to Dunsinade. I was like, that's it al- dope. It also just allowed it to have this really amazing look at the end. Oh, yeah. Where yeah. it's like, n- not only is everything just like red, this piercing, omnipresent red, but the mistiness. And it's like... Not only is it just amazing to look at, but it's like thematically on point, right? Like everything is burning at this point. Like this is the <laughs> end and you're just shrouded in the mist of whatever, whether it's like your own just psychosis or desires run amok. Like it's all burned at this point. Yeah. You're in yeah. the smoke of it. It's like that viscous. is definitely, yeah, that's the... They're definitely like the the part. Of, I think people who have seen this movie, that's really the part they remember. Like, oh, I remember when it was all red and they yeah, were. Yeah, that's fighting. what I said. That when you guys I talked about the, movie. the whole yeah. movie being red. Yeah, I thought it was too. I thought it was like when I saw the preview, I was like, this movie shot in this cool color palette. And when you guys first brought it up, I thought the same thing. I remember seeing that scene of you know Fassbender in the fog or the smoke or whatever, and it just being red all around him. And yeah, being they, like, ooh, okay. That that's definitely like a, just a scene that's shot so well and so beautifully. And there's a part where like he's walking up to Macduff, or I believe he's walking up just to the first soldier he kills, and they light him from the back, and they turn the camera to his face, and it looks he looks like like a like a like a black silhouette that they just oh. like imposed over it. Like he has no features anymore, and it's just like. It was such a this beautiful. It was very Kurosawa, like we were meet with in Throne of Blood when Lady Macbeth or Lady, uh, whatever, whatever yeah. her name yeah. is, yeah. she walks into the <laughs> darkness and disappears, and then comes around and walks back out. That was just like a very Kurosawa type shot, and I really, really loved that shot. And yeah, the whole fight was beautifully choreographed between uh, Macduff and um, Macbeth. Well. 
uh, no, <laughs> between Macbeth, Macduff and Macbeth, they uh, that was just like good fight choreography in general. Like it yeah. felt real. They were kind of doing these like little cuts and s- like scrapes instead of like cling, 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 final yeah. blow. Yeah, exactly. I like the idea of you know, I guess a lot of old medieval, a lot of medieval fighting had a lot of it to do with like thrusting and stabbing, right? It's yeah. like more of like, we're not going to just bang swords together. It's like, I'm going to try and find the weaknesses in your armor and I'm going to shove my sword into it unless you do something, you know, to prevent me, which makes for a much more like crazy fight, much more or less like choreographed. Um, yeah. I had a question for you guys without, I don't know if we're getting all the way or going all the way, but it seems like, you know, we're doing the movie in little bits and pieces out of order. But one thing I just wanted to ask before we you know, before it gets overlooked is, is the end telling us something? I was going to ask you guys. You mean like apropos, uh, Fleance Mm -hmm. deciding whether or not to kill Macbeth. Yeah. I think it's, I think, yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's proposing the choice. So he picks up the sword, right? And he runs off into the the horizon or the distance. That's how it ends. I believe. Now, my whole thing when I watched that, I was like, oh, no, it wasn't hopeful to me. What, what I thought of was, oh, no, here goes another ambitious man running headstrong into the world. Who knows what his story will be in a few 50 years when he's vying for power or something, you know? And yeah. I don't know why I thought that. It wasn't like redemptive to me. It was like, do you think, do you think world... we need a sequel? <laughs> you know, like I thought of that, you know, like Macbeth too, like him just like rolling around all grown. Macbeth 2, Die Harder. (laughs) I think that with Jeff's interpretation and reading of the witches, it actually makes sense, this idea of like the cyclical idea of men, power, ambition, royalty, and like vying for for kingship or for power in any way. It starts off when you're a child because you were wronged by someone and you you do feel right in your motions, you know? But then slowly as you go through life, like, you start thinking and questioning things like, well, maybe I do deserve this. Maybe I am such a good person that I do deserve this title or things like that, you know? So it's interesting when I was thinking of Lance, I was like, damn, are you going to grow up to be just like a, another Macbeth with all your anger and ambition? Or hopefully will you grow up to be more like, you know, your father? But I thought that with Jeff's theory, I thought it is now it like kind of makes it makes sense to me. Well, let's just, let's just put it this way. I think we can all agree. I think a lot of people can agree that the witches don't want what's good for Scotland. Yeah. So let's, they want death. They, they, you can see many times in their interaction with bodies, how they're kind of associated with like the, the ghosts of the dead telling the prophecy to Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Like they, they thrive on war and, and, and death and killing. So we can kind of come to that assumption. There's also a, a, a a lot of Shakespearean scholars agree that Macbeth was supposed to be a sequel. That Shakespeare oh. definitely had a sequel in mind, or at least was playing around with the idea when he wrote the ending. It is you the mean, shortest play, right? Are you saying are you saying Macbeth itself is a sequel, or no. that he wanted to plan a sequel? He wanted to plan a sequel for okay. Macbeth because well, Macbeth understood. was one of his more unsuccessful plays. It, it only got famous seven years after his death. And so, so he wanted, you could tell there's a little bit of that because it ends in a very 
cliffhanger style fashion. You know, you have Fleance who was promised by the Weird Sisters to be king, mm-hmm. who goes off with with the sword of Macbeth, uh, of the of the fallen king, of the tyrant king. At the same time, you have that scene with Jack Raynard pulling out the king's sword, Duncan's sword. Yeah. And, I that. and so it's like it's like these two warriors that are going to have to cross paths. And obviously the witches don't want the line of Duncan on the throne. Uh-huh. And maybe because he'll bring stability to Scotland and no more civil war. So, yeah, you're right. It's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be like, oh, shit, more war is coming. Yeah, that's what I thought. You know, I was like, oh, God, here we go again. You know, especially yeah. with that color palette, it's the kind red. Of telling. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> we'll never know. We'll never know how the uh, Kurzel and his team of, of writers would uh, interpret it because this movie made about eight dollars at the box office. Oh, yeah, know. it was not a uh, well re- well received by critics, though. I think I it mean, was, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, people liked it that saw it. It's just like your general audience is not interested in seeing Shakespeare. They they want to watch Transformers Nine: The Rise of Bumblebee. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think uh, you know, like there's beyond what we've. I mean, I think we've really hit the nail on the head when it comes to what the movie's trying to say apropos to the play. But there are still some just some really great scenes. So I mean, what are just some scenes that you guys really enjoyed just in general, like stylistically, or we haven't talked just, about it, but I loved Banquo's death scene with his son in the forest um yeah i think it was why because i hated how it was shot so i hated the the shot but like looking at it thematically i liked the idea of being in this forest of living and being in this forest of very like natural things i don't know why because the whole movie seems like it's shot on like the plains of scotland right or on wide open cliffs and I think that's one of the only scenes that I remember them being out in nature and being surrounded by like vibrance and life. And so as Banquo falls down, right, and you see him fall down and it, the camera does that weird thing where it's like looking at his face and his son is running off. This idea of all this vegetation and like fertility of life in the forest was like it meant something to me because it was like for what you pass like now and you don't get your instant gratification like Macbeth did, you will have this forest and this legacy of, of kings. So hmm. I thought that yeah. scene, Interesting. scene was cool. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that it definitely... I agree with Jesse that it was the worst shot scene in the movie by far, but I it needed to be in there because the the whole like flee fleons flee yeah like that's that's a very like kind of memorable line and yeah it's easy just don't shake your camera violently yeah there's, there's no reason to do it especially yeah. with how well they shot static scenes mm-hmm. in this yeah it was like it looks great it i don't know why doing that. yeah the static shots in in the dinner scene you know when he's going nuts and even when He's learning the news of his wife. Some of the scenes where he's crumpled on the floor, they just place that camera in like the perfect spot in the corner of the room and they let the light fall down and they just let the actors kind of act. And they intersperse little close-ups, but... And, well, yeah, they play with light so beautifully in this movie. Like Lots they of candles, just, yeah. Lots of, lots of flickering light, lots of natural light. Like There's a lot of scenes in the castle where you're just getting the light that's streaming in from the windows... And it's much more like just somber and empty feeling, and and then the scenes where they play with like natural firelight, there's just a lot of flickering, and mm-hmm. it like dances with the shadows and gives people really like 
more sinister edges. I don't know. It's just the lighting in this movie is so well done and so natural. Yeah. yeah. Uh, almost, almost all of it is impeccable. And then mm-hmm. just those few moments like really, are, they're, they're so noticeable because everything else looks so good. You know, it's true. Yeah. But um, I had I had a comedy, a couple comedy questions for you guys. All right. All right. So, who would have ruined the movie in the Macbeth role? Um, besides Jack Reynard. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, like, man. what if you had so like many. 1995 Mel Gibson Braveheart in this role? Was that 1995? I can't. I think uh, yeah, I'm thinking uh, yeah. Lethal Weapon almost. <laughs> Oh man! I mean, so many. That's the thing is, like, it's such a, like, it's so many people. I mean, like Hulk Hogan, you know, <laughs> like, he, he wouldn't have carried the character very strongly. But I mean, as far as like conventional actor, uh, I don't know. Like, don't give this movie. Maybe Christian Slater. You don't Slater. even need to answer it. It's just a funny maybe yeah. question. Yeah, like exactly like, something like so that. Like Corey Feldman. Yeah, it's working, it's working so well that it's it's uh, hard Corey to Feldman. picture anyone else. Like it's uh, easier to answer like who would have done it really well, like probably James McAvoy or Cumberbatch, someone like that. Any of the any of the X Men actors, <laughs> right? You know, McAvoy would actually be a very interesting choice. I actually like him a lot. I've seen a lot. Yeah, of his he's he's been Macbeth on the stage. Oh, I didn't. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. So, um, my other comedy question is: uh, <laughs> is this film is directed by Roland Emmerich? How does it change? Oh God. Hmm. Well, well, for one, Mac- every character would be the comedic relief. Yeah. Instead of nobody. <laughs> Banquo would constantly be like the guy who's like, you know, not until the fat lady sings, whipping out the cigars and everything while they're doing their their whole get to. The Harry Connick Jr. role, I guess. Would he be like, would you recast Banquo as like a wisecracking black guy? Yeah, you know, with like, give me some, give me some influence now. And he just whips out whatever scripture he has. <laughs> Basically, let's just make it into hard rain, right? <laughs> like, right. But... Yeah, no, I mean, I was thinking you were asking about movie switch, uh, actor switching within the movie. Like, what if Fassbender was Macduff oh. and Harris was was Macbeth, you know? Um, man, I love yeah, the what scar. Yeah, Marion Cotillard was, yeah. was Banquo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I wanted to ask, what did you guys think? Of, so you guys were saying something about her accent and how it was intentional. Was that kind of supposed to be like this, you know, foreign influence aspect of like evil or something is that why they had her do it i think just like a, a, an amount of of separation and exoticism i don't think there was an mm. element of like evil or darkness intended from it at least from the 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 root of the choice um no that makes yeah. sense though that exotic kind of she does have a very strong accent right that herself like when she acts in other films so maybe it was just difficult for her. I, I don't. I'm not quite sure. It's you think they retconned that? They're like, ah, <laughs> oh, she can't do it. Yeah. So we'll just say it was a choice. Entirely possible. I think that was probably what they were going to do for Jack Rayner if he had any more lines in the movie, yeah. because his <laughs> Scottish accent was abysmal. It was like, oh, I, I'd rather her just speak in her normal accent and just yeah. have me, because I just didn't. I don't think it interrupts anything, but. 
but I'd rather that than someone who like switches their accent on and off throughout a movie. No, it's like, uh, yeah, yeah. Jack Rayner's accent, like when he gives McDuff the information, mm-hmm. it's so poorly done. It goes from like, Glaswegian to Edinburgh very, uh, like, very it, quickly, and he just flips back and forth between like British and then rolling like, the R's every once in a and while, the, and it's like, and it's like, and he's and, he, and he's an American actor, so I get it. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like I I get where where he's coming from, but there's still. I don't know. I I I, I think they would have retconned him as well if they if they thought, and he would just speak in his Colorado accent. I had Scotty vibes <laughs> from Star Trek pretty much every time he would speak. Right. Yeah. So. No, I think That's you know. I, I I think overall, I'm really glad that like I watched the the movie. It's hard to knock the storyline, right? Because it's like, okay, you're adapting this off of one of the greatest playwrights of all time. I mean, you could butcher it, though. When no, you're yeah. doing a thing where you're where you're picking and choosing like this, they did a really good job of like choosing what supported the tone that they wanted to go for. Exactly, it was so efficient. It was so yeah. like, yeah. I, and you know, I, I'm trying to think now, thinking of this guy's career, the director's career, and the Assassin's Creed and the stuff that he's done. Maybe have when you, he was. Have you guys seen any other movie he's done? I have not. All? No. No, neither okay. have I. So maybe when he was making the film, you know, you guys were talking about earlier how the pieces seemed to fall into place very perfectly in the movie. Maybe while he was making it and the three three other screenwriters that were with him, maybe, you know, things just started to fall into place as they were as they were doing it. And then he just hasn't been able to replicate or, or recreate that since. But I would say this movie is like a very strong contender for me to be up in, you know, if we have to do numbers. I would put it in almost... High eights. We do nines. not have to do numbers. Okay. I hate it. numbers. <laughs> I don't do numbers on my site. I'll do it for something like, you know, just quoting off the off the top of my mind, like what I thought of Assassin's Creed is like mm-hmm. a two out of ten. But like, no, 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 no. We don't need to rate movies with Got numbers. <laughs> That's all people pay attention to if you do it. It you does. Know, like, I mean, oh, I would have given it a nine. Yeah, rah, 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 rah. The seventy percent on Rotten Tomato. You know, like, yeah. But like I get I get how it's like a useful metric, especially because Rotten Tomatoes is like an aggregate thing. You can get a pretty good sense. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's not how I personally like I would rather people like listen to the words. You know, that's why I don't do it on the reviews on my site or anything. Got it. It's just like a distraction. And it's like, I don't know. It feels bad to do it as well yeah like it like, does even if you really liked a movie like very few movies i would put in a 10 category even if they don't have flaws mm-hmm. it's just so strange it does make me feel bad about comparing then later movies when i'm like assigned a number to one movie but then you know i see another movie and i'm like well how could i justify the discrepancy in that you know when you don't need to that's not what i guess it's not like a mathematical thing but i would say that this movie as far as like being a shakespeare adaptation i feel like people try to get too clever sometimes with it, you know, like you have the trope of like, Oh, this is actually a high school drama, but it's based on this play, you know, or like trying to shroud it in something that it's not. And I really appreciate just the bare bones. Like, no, I'm doing Shakespeare here. And like, it's going to be Shakespeare, but I thought he just did it incredibly well. And visually, like you guys said, is the visuals is the best part of the movie, the color palette and everything for me. And those long shots. Yeah, it tells you a story without having 
to really give you all of the dialogue of Macbeth. And that mm-hmm. is truly where it, it excels the most and makes it different than an average Shakespeare adaptation is. It has people that know the source material, know what in the source material is worth saying and what is worth not saying. And that is so difficult to do with uh, Shakespeare. And I just think they did it beautifully. Yeah, it's a uh, great scenes, great acting, great filmmaking when it is great some some shaky cam stuff (laughs) uh don't let your camera be held by a drunk man when it's just flat dialogue scenes agreed Um, yeah definitely but like yeah great movie uh nine out of (laughs) ten and i had a a, a question is just like what if there were to make a sequel of Macbeth? like what would the title be and like you can go anywhere. Like I heard, like Jesse did uh, Macbeth die harder. Well, that's that's the greatest sequel name of all time, isn't it? Isn't it like <laughs> Die, die Hard Two, Die Harder? That's like wonderful. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty amazing <laughs> as far as like ridiculous movie like sub names go. Like, would it be like <laughs> Macbeth Two Revengeance? Macbeth Two, it happened again. <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe you know the forest has come. Something like something, that. Yeah, something, something like that. Well, you have to. We have to know what the movie's about. That's the thing. Yeah, I mean, what's the plot here? We can do it in like, um, like Fast and Furious format. We can do like Macbeth, Macbeth. Where they 2, drive cars. Mac. Oh, oh. Beth. I thought you meant like, like uh, the yeah. story of Macbeth, but no, the way they do plus Juliet style, and it's like, like Vin Diesel is in it. <laughs> no, I meant more like the. Like Just the have na- the cast the of Fast and Furious play Macbeth. Oh, with man. cars have ludicrous i'd watch well. that i mean do you think this movie works if you're not into shakespeare and if you don't care for like the plays or anything like that do you think like a a person could sit down and be like oh this was interesting like this journey was relatable i guess depends if you like movies yeah it's, a, you it's like a, cinema yeah Got if it. you like films if you like structure and you don't really need to like know the narrative or the source material then yes but I don't think this is a movie that you can sit down with just anyone and watch. Mm-hmm. I think it could be could come off as like boring or like hard to follow. Yeah. Yeah. You and have so to like, be a movie douche like us. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be you a have to have real weirdo. About, about yeah, exactly. Yeah, a real weirdo. <laughs> hey, brought it back. That was perfect. It. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Check it out if you haven't. Um, if you have not and you listen to all this anyway god bless you yeah sir and or madam um yeah that was it that was shakespeare so before we wrap up did you guys have any uh other recommendations you see anything cool this week or something to avoid or something that was just i don't know generally interesting yeah i do actually uh, a movie called the pledge by uh is one of sean penn's earlier directorial projects um it stars jack nicholson came out in 2001 and it's your typical uh cop retired still has one last case kind of thing that he needs to figure out but there's a twist classic there's a twist to it at the end that has nothing to do with the typical detective or crime shows that i think makes it very interesting but it's very flawed who do i want to directed it sean penn Oh, Sean Penn directed it. Yeah. Okay. Which is like, I know he's gotten into directing more and more and making movies here and there. Um, but this was one of the earlier ones, I think. And 
a stellar cast, just a whole host of people making even bit parts, A-list actors making bit parts, which is interesting. You have Sam Shepard, Francis McDormand, Mickey Rourke here and there. I mean, Jack Nicholson's the lead, right? But it's, it's an interesting movie, an interesting project, I guess. It's interesting when actors jump the fence, you yeah. know, like a really well-known actor makes his own movie. It's crazy to see the type of pull that he had too, right? Because being Sean Penn, he didn't necessarily need the money or the studios to get people like Mickey Rourke to literally make a two-minute cameo. And no, it's you just powerful. call your buddies. Yeah, exactly. Like, hey, you know, we'll go drink or shoot the shit afterwards, you know? But uh, no, it, it, was, it was good. All right. The pledge, right? Mm -hmm. The pledge. The pledge. Jeffrey, you got anything? Yeah. Um, I have been revisiting one of my favorite kind of dark comedy short series called A Young Doctor's Notebook. Stars um, the good old Daniel Radcliffe, our, oh. our, our resident Mr. Harry Potter. Potter. Mr. Potter. Mr. Potter. And... Um, uh, uh, or the farting corpse in that other movie. <laughs> I love that movie. Was Jesus. that Swiss Army Man? Yeah, Swiss, Swiss Army, Army Man. Man. That shit was hilarious. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's um John Hamm and um Daniel Radcliffe, and it's a kind of a funny story. It's it's based off a a Russian short story about a doctor who has to who a young doctor who's been relocated to a very 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 tiny hospital in the middle of but fuck nowhere Russia in the cold and you know, it's just kind of surviving. It's, it's a dark comedy. It's really, really good. In my opinion, um, John Hamm kind of plays the older version of Daniel Radcliffe's characters. And they, the kind of the way they do this is like they, he's able to interact with his younger self, but the events that are going to happen that made him the man he is are going to happen anyway. But in, it's oh. a kind of like an interesting storytelling medium they do where it's not like a sci-fi thing, like he's going back in time or anything. He's actually just strung out and just thinking about his past, but he can interact with his older and younger self. And it's, uh, it's very interestingly done and great characters, great actors, very funny. So yeah, Young Doctor's Notebook, highly recommend. I love that Interesting concept. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I watched something. I was talking to you guys about this earlier, but it's a movie that I'd seen probably in high school around when it came out called The Libertine with Johnny Depp from 2004 that's been mostly forgotten. And I'm not even sure if it's good, but I really enjoyed it for the most part. It's it's relentlessly ugly. He plays the <laughs> Earl of Rochester who is a libertine. He's just like a poet who just fucks everybody and drinks wine and like hates the world and Johnny Depp like the the dialogue is quite often like borderline Shakespearean it's very play like um very theatrical and really well done when it is well done uh it's the best part of it is Johnny Depp just being this like this like sex symbol serpent in like Victorian <laughs> England and just like hating everything and like i said the movie is relentlessly ugly though it looks like it's covered in poison yellow mist the whole movie like the oh. makeup like the whole feeling of london is just disgusting in this film and it's a very debauched and raunchy movie as well like in addition to that it doesn't really pull punches 
But that being said, it's not a masterpiece either. Like, it has problems. The third act falls apart. Um, and it, the movie doesn't really know, finally, what it's about. But having the core of this character is just, like, the kind of character that I, I tend to gravitate to. Mm-hmm. This, like, really intelligent, like, but, but like, drunk <laughs> and like I don't know, just like debonair is so yeah. dashing in a weird way. So it's a very weird movie. It's I don't think like most people are gonna enjoy it, but if it sounds like you might, then maybe you're a real weirdo too. <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah, I think that's it for today, gents. We've gone almost what two hours talking about Macbeth and hotcakes. Mm-hmm. Yep. All kinds of glorious <laughs> stuff. It was a, I mean, an hour and a half. Well deserved. Not too bad. There was a lot well to talk deserved. about in, in the film. I thought it was great. Yeah. So next week, we're going to do The Holy Mountain, oh, boy. which is my choice. I can't, I can't wait to see what this hmm. will be because this movie is an ex, like a nonstop experimental just a freak show, essentially. And it might just be me describing the movie and these guys being like, yeah, that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we'll see. We will so see. So we'll have to see. <clears throat> but, yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everyone. And uh, yeah, thank welcome. Welcome to the real weirdos. Exactly. We, we shall return. 